The first of my posts to the Facebook group about chapters 15 to 21 of the Kreutzer Sonata was a focused summary. Poznashev describes the torments of jealousy he suffered, particularly in the period when the doctor forbade his wife to nurse her first child. This, he says, both aroused unrest in her and mistrust in him, because she was violating all that was natural and moral, and because she was doing so so easily. Then he indulges in a vitriolic aside on the evil of doctors, whom he condemns as charlatans only after money, as murderers responsible for the deaths of those they are entrusted to heal, and most important, as moral criminals who corrupt the world with materialism. The later children and his wife's nursing of them, which we are led to believe brought a healthier chasteness to their married life, is all that saved them. When asked by our narrator what has become of those children, Poznashev says that they have been taken away from him, because he, in his newfound monomaniacal wisdom, is viewed as a lunatic who can't be trusted to bring them up. And so, he says, they will grow up like all the savages around them. Though he claims the children saved them, he roundly declares that children are a torment and nothing else. Though they might once have been a joy and a blessing, in this era of selfishness they are viewed as undesirable and a burden. How does this selfishness manifest itself? As fear of the child falling ill or dying, for this reveals that the mother is thinking of her own feelings, neither sacrificing herself to the child nor trusting in God. It were better to be an animal, he says, who instinctively feeds, caresses, and protects its young, and is not tormented by the prospect of illness or even the eventuality of death. His wife, like all selfish mothers, tortured herself with questions of the right way to raise, educate, nourish, and heal her children, and the children became another cause of dissension that poisoned marital life. He says he and his wife then reached a state of basic hostility, a state in which they had collisions and acrimonious words over the most trivial of subjects, and in which they had come to regard mutual understanding as an impossibility. Her little personal quirks and habits that might once have inspired affection now inspired hatred and rage. Their relationship became a pattern of wild swings from animosity to quote-unquote love, from conflict to copulation, which he now realizes were merely two poles of the same animal feeling. But at the time, they befogged themselves so as not to see their own misery and forgot themselves in occupation with household affairs. He describes them memorably as living like, quote, two convicts hating each other and chained together, poisoning one another's lives and trying not to see it, unquote. And he now understands that 99% of married people live in a similar hell. Living in town, he says, people have no time to take account of themselves, and they can live a hundred years without realizing that they are dead and have rotted away. And so he and his wife lived, until the thing happened that ultimately led to his wife's murder. The doctor advised her not to have any more children, and taught her how to avoid it. Children, he says, are the only justification for their swinish existence, and once deprived of it, 
their life together became viler than ever. On top of that, she developed the sort of provocative beauty that attracts notice, disturbs people, and makes them restless. Freed of the burden of children, she became animated by the one thing in the world women are taught to believe is worthy of attention—love. But married love was befouled by jealousy and anger. She sought some other clean, new love. Or, he says as an intriguing aside, at least he thought she had. She gave less attention to the children and more to her appearance, her pleasures, and her accomplishments. And it was then that that man entered into their lives. That man, with his moist, almond-shaped eyes, his attractive attire, his familiar demeanor, and his talent for music. And though his wife's relations with that man could be pointed to as the cause of her murder, the real cause, he says, lies in the abyss of mutual hatred that was their marriage. It is at this point that Poznashev's narrative makes an eerie turn to the present tense, and we are made to experience all the dread of their next quarrel as if we were standing there as mute and helpless witnesses at his side. A trivial disagreement leads to a dispute. They try and fail to restrain the fury that seizes them. She tries to run away, and he physically restrains her. And then he gives vent to his rage by saying he wishes she were dead, and all in front of the children. She leaves the house. He goes to his study to indulge revenge fantasies and to smoke. And when she doesn't return, he engages in neurotic rumination about what it all means and what to do. She returns. He finds her lying on the bed next to an empty bottle of opium, and the ever-worsening pattern continues. It is at this point in their turbulent and tortured lives that Trukhachovsky arrives, and despite the fact, or more accurately, in spiteful defiance of the fact, that he senses it would be a fatal error to introduce this man to his wife, he does so. This is the first action in what becomes a perverse pattern of repression and denial. The more jealous and suspicious he is of his wife's relations with Trukhachovsky, the more warm and inviting he becomes. He observes between them lustful gazes, sympathetic expressions, and an animal attraction, further excited by Trukhachovsky's talent for music and the nearness of their playing it together. And despite his desire to kill this man on the spot, he still invites him back. Again, we transition to the present tense, and we feel the sinking of Poznashev's heart as he comes home one day and sees Trukhachevsky's overcoat. He hears their music and imagines it is drowning out the sounds of their voices, of their kisses, though when he bursts through the door, he finds them merely playing. He expects her to appear frightened, and when she doesn't, assumes it is a pretense. They say they were discussing what to play, and he is sure they had agreed upon this duplicitous story. And despite his overwhelming jealousy and distress, he sees Trukhachevsky out with a politeness and warmth that is ominous and chilling. And we have arrived at the reason for the title. Quote, you would become a laughingstock to others if you tried to prevent such nearness at balls or the nearness of doctors to their women patients, 
or of people occupied with art, sculpture, and especially music. A couple are occupied with the noblest of arts, music. This demands a certain nearness, and there is nothing reprehensible in that, and only a stupid, jealous husband can see anything undesirable in it. Yet everybody knows that it is by means of those very pursuits, especially of music, that the greater part of the adulteries in our society occur. Unquote. Music, like Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata. The next of my post to the Facebook group was called Why I Almost Threw the Book Across the Room. In the name of widening your literary horizons to include works you might find philosophically repugnant, I sometimes find myself playing advocate to the devil. That is certainly true here. I'm sincerely glad to have this story as part of my literary repertoire, but I will admit that reading these last chapters, I had moments of total repulsion. And as I have felt tempted by Tolstoy before, I wanted to throw the book across the room. So, at the risk of adding fuel to anyone's fiery aversion to Tolstoy, I've decided to devote a little time to what I found so unpleasant about these chapters. There is, of course, the matter of the story's basic theme, that sex, even in the context of marriage, is the single most corrupting and destructive force in human society. Well, let's just say, I disagree. But what can be so uncomfortable reading Tolstoy is that he is masterful at using truths about the human experience, insights that are powerfully and universally resonant, as the foundation for what are ultimately grand-scale non-sequiturs. So within his cynical and wholly damning description of marriage and child-rearing and doctors and womanhood, there are astute observations with which I feel I can relate. But then I have to work to differentiate my sympathy with his discreet observations from any sympathy with his philosophic conclusions. Also, having recently read Frankenstein for the first time, I find myself very tired of the it-were-better-to-be-a-brute argument, particularly uttered in the context of an impassioned and intellectual work of literature. In Frankenstein, Walton thinks to himself, quote, why does man boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we are moved by every wind that blows, and a chance word or scene that that word may convey to us. Unquote. In the Kreutzer Sonata, Poznashev says of his wife, quote, The attachment to her children— the animal need of feeding, caressing, and protecting them was there, as with most women, but there was not the lack of imagination and reason that there is in animals." Unquote. I read great literature precisely because I do not want to live a brutish existence, because I want to expand and develop and clarify all those qualities of soul that make a meaningful life possible. But here, Shelley and Tolstoy would use all the powers of the most refined human thought to persuade us that it were better to be a brute. But there was one particular point in these chapters when I had to put the story aside and return to the warm embrace of my family. I had been distantly captivated by Poznashev's psychopathic ranting. 
but then he came to the part of the story in which he eerily shifts to the present tense. Quote, she remarked, not a medal, but an honorable mention. A dispute ensues. Unquote. And we are dragged into a play-by-play of events with more realism than anything that had come before. Events that include the first time we have seen him lay hands on his wife. And we are not the only witnesses. She calls the distraught children to her side. And we have to see events play out through their eyes as well. It was too much for me. I found my notes on this story from my reading of it over a decade ago, and they included a brief account of what I liked about it. I wrote, The stature of Poznashev, the monomaniac, a man entirely consumed by an important idea, the almost demonic intensity of his mannerisms, the forcefulness of his presentation, and the intelligence, power, and strength of conviction it suggests, however perverse. I still feel the same way. But sometimes, the nature of those ideas and their dark, dramatic form makes me want to throw the book across the room. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called The Death of Tolstoy. I mentioned earlier that Tolstoy's marriage to Sophia, also called Sonia, did not end as happily as it began. According to an article in The Guardian, from Sophia's diaries emerges, quote, a picture of a cruel and difficult man, indifferent to his family, endlessly critical, unquote. Sophia wrote in her diary, quote, all the things that he preaches for the happiness of humanity only complicate life to the point where it becomes harder and harder for me to live. His sermons on love and goodness have made him indifferent to his family and mean the intrusion of all kinds of riffraff into our family life. And his purely verbal renunciation of worldly goods has made him endlessly critical and disapproving of others." Unquote. An article in The New Yorker says that the night Tolstoy died, he walked out on his wife after 48 years of marriage, leaving her a note that said, quote, I am doing what old men of my age usually do, leaving worldly life to spend the last days of my life in solitude and quiet, unquote. He was taken ill on the train and forced to disembark, and the stationmaster gave him use of his house. Upon hearing of his illness, his wife traveled to his side, but was denied entrance to the house by friends caring for him until Tolstoy was on the brink of death. If you visit the Facebook group, you can see a fascinating photo of Sophia peering through the window at Tolstoy on his deathbed. I've also included links to the articles I referenced here, as well as a fascinating three-minute clip on YouTube about Tolstoy's death from a BBC biography. Next time, we will finish this story. Let's see it through together, and then, if you're so inclined, feel free to throw the book across the room.